Welcome to Insights, practical startup advice from founders, leaders, and VCs in an easy-to-consume format. This podcast is created by Angular Ventures, a full-stack pre-A VC firm that backs early-stage enterprise and deep tech companies from Europe or Israel that are targeting global category leadership with an emphasis on the U.S. market from day one. These podcasts are taped virtually with a live audience. To join an upcoming session or learn more about the firm and how we operate, find us at angularventures.com. Well, thank you so much, everyone, for joining us. We have a great session planned for you today. This is our second Angular Insights, and we're lucky to be joined with Jerry Dishler, who's a product leader at Google. For those who don't know me, my name is Anne Bloom. I am the head of platform at Angular Ventures. We kicked off this event series recently to bring community together during this time that's a little bit weird, and people, especially founders, can feel a bit isolated. So we want to bring founders together with subject matter experts, and this is a fun way to go about doing so. And with that, I will pass it over to Gil. Hey, thanks, Anne. So I've known Jerry for quite a few years now. And every time I meet him, he's added another few thousand people to the a number of people that he manages. So it's, it's become a running joke. I ask him every time I meet, how many thousands are you managing now? But he's a very, very senior uh, product manager within Google, not only managing very large teams, but managing product teams that are very much core to Google's revenue business. So the search ads business for the core Google search, all of you to advertising, and a whole bunch of other ancillary products that, that he may, may be able to talk about. But it's, it's a big, big chunk of Google's revenue base comes through products that, that Jerry manages, the teams that run them. And it's a real privilege to have him on the call today. It's also a real privilege to have him as our in-house product Sherpa. And he's been working with one or two of our portfolio companies pretty intensely to, to help them think through some product challenges. As you know, we like to invest in companies very early. And, and sometimes there's pretty interesting product issues they need to deal with. So I've got to see Jerry in action a little bit. And I'm glad that you all have the chance to see him in action today. Jerry, thank you so much for doing this. The is yours. Thanks, Gil. Thanks, Anne. It's an honor. I'm going to go through a few things that I've learned over the course of the past 15 years working in product management at Google. So my first learning is in cases where you've got a great product in a bad market versus a bad product in a great market, the market usually wins. And so this is something to reflect on when deciding what to embark on. I learned this, actually, this was the inspiration that I had for getting into product management. I was an engineering manager at a startup about a 100-person startup in San Francisco. This was in ye olden days during the dot-com era in the late 90s. And the product manager who I was working with came to me and said, we have this great idea for a product. And the product had three attributes. Number one, according to the product manager, it needed to be built very quickly. Number two, it was incredibly technically complex. And number three, I had the sinking feeling that when we were done, that the entire target market for this product was like four customers and probably we couldn't pivot it to be in any other adjacent markets. It was a purpose-built product with a very small number of customers that was very technically complex and needed to be delivered very soon. And so I could tell sort of at the beginning of this process that it was going to be a tough year. And in fact, it was a tough year and the product had four customers and we really couldn't do very much with the product. And so a few years later, we had to ramp it down. So I would encourage you to think deeply about markets. And if you're going to put your efforts, if you're going to put your technical efforts and your product insights into a problem, that problem should be worth it. So that being said, there's a fallacy on the other side 
which is that I can't count the number of times that somebody has come into my office and said, we need a team of 10 people to work on this $2 trillion market opportunity. And when I hear 10 people and $2 trillion market opportunity, I think, you know, you don't necessarily understand the problem in enough detail. There is no homogeneous population of users that represent a $2 trillion market opportunity. If you really want to pursue something with any normal size founding team, you need to focus. And so you need to pick off the sub problem within that $2 trillion opportunity that's actually tractable, that allows you to get a reasonable population of delighted users for you to be able to learn. And so by doing so, now that doesn't mean that you should get into the problem that I talked about before where you only have four users, but it does mean that you should pick a population that's uniform enough that you think you can get excited with a reasonable feature set that is adjacent to other markets where you can build on that and learn in an iterative way. If you pick a problem that's too big, you'll end up getting pulled in 50,000 different directions and you're not necessarily going to get the pace of learning that you need in order to be successful. The third thing I've learned that's related to this is I'm a big believer in driver models. And this is not necessarily a popular opinion in the Valley, but it's something that I find incredibly helpful. Now, what I'm talking about is a simple back of the napkin model that says, here is our version of the world. Here is what we believe to be true in order for this product to be successful. So for example, if we're talking about advertising products, here is the number of queries or the number of pages or the number of other ways of generating inventory. So basically here's the population on which you're operating and here's the engagement rate that you have for this thing. And here's the number of advertisers that might be relevant, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And these don't have to be high fidelity estimates. They just need to be estimates that you throw into the model. And then what you take a look at is, okay, how many of these estimates can be validated by way of analogy or by way of data? And then which of these estimates are outside the normal ranges? And so with a good product, you want to minimize the number of assumptions that are truly revolutionary assumptions and you want to make the rest of the assumptions either uh, stable assumptions or incremental assumptions. So for example, if you've got, let's say that you've got two products, one of them has a brand new population of users that needs to be developed, requires significant user experience innovation to perform even better, and has a new population of advertisers that needs to be generated that's taking on a lot more risk than one that has a stable user population, has conservative assumptions related to interaction rates, and maybe has to develop an incrementally different advertiser population that also has an analogy to other uh, products that have been successful. So by looking at a driver model like this, with back-of-the-napkin assumptions, you can know either how crazy optimistic you are or how realistic you are. 
The other benefit that you have of building a driver model is that the assumptions that you have that can't be validated up front, you can test independently using as small experiments as possible so that you can manage your risks. Also, once you have this model and once you've tested the assumptions, you can input the new information into the models and you can evolve your thinking as your product grows. To some extent, this is an analogy from sort of an old programming graphic that was, the first place I saw this was this Microsoft book called Rapid Development back years ago. But basically it was the question of the cost of a bug. And so if you detect a bug at the requirements phase, it costs you a dollar. If you detect it in production, it costs $1,000. At least that was their assertion. The same thing is true here. If you can resolve an unrealistic assumption early in a driver model, it's much cheaper than it is if you do so in production because you have to pivot your product because one of your assumptions wasn't well thought through. And so if you have a solid market, if you have a solid business model, if you have a driver model with realistic assumptions where you're managing risks, it makes it much easier for you to have a high hit rate and have a successful product. So we use this all the time. The next item here is that as a product manager, you are responsible for developing and for being a champion of your mission. So once you've decided what problem to solve, you need to ensure that everybody on the team understands what problem you're solving and your key job is to focus the team on that thing. The more that people understand the mission, the more that people understand what problem they're trying to solve, the easier it is for everybody to operate independently and really run fast. If you're faced with situations where you're a month, two months, three months down the road and you're still arguing assumptions or you're still arguing what's important, you've failed. And what you really need to do as a product manager is evaluate those situations and ask yourself the five whys. You need to go back to the drawing board and say, okay, why are we having this conflict? What is the underlying disagreement that's driving this conflict? And resolve those issues so that you get that friction-free, well-aligned, mission-driven uh, team dynamic that will lead to your success. And so that's really, really important that you take this on as product manager so that you can help the team run quickly. The last thing that I'll talk about is the four attributes that we look for in a product manager at Google. And when I first came into Google and I first started interviewing people, I thought that these attributes were a little overly specific. And I was wondering whether actually this was a good predictor of product management success or not. I've done over 500 interviews of product managers over the years, and I've come to the conclusion, at least my personal belief, is that these are the right factors to look for in a general purpose product manager. The first one is product insights. What this means is that you're, the person that you're interviewing really needs to have good product ideas. This is not about knowing what experiments to run to analyze your way into a corner. This is somebody who is fundamentally looking at products and trying to see how they can improve them or has a lot of new ideas that they can generate quickly. The second is analytical skill. So you need to be able to take a look at a large volume of data and be able to weave a story from those data. Being able to break apart a problem into an analytical framework 
helps you learn once you've got those product ideas and insights. The third is technical expertise. It's a lot easier to have a product manager that has empathy with the people who are building the product. Remember, if you've got two employees, one is a product manager who can't code, and another one is an engineer who can code, the engineer wins. They write the code. That's the thing that you're selling. That's the thing that you're deploying. So as a product manager, it's very helpful to have empathy for what the engineer does because also because of your ability to persuade engineers to do the thing that you want, assuming it's the right thing, as well as the ability to communicate in shorthand. Because if you have an idea of what it takes in order to be able to build something, it's much easier to arrive at the right solution more quickly. The final thing is the ability to get things done, really the ability to execute. And it's not just personal execution, but it's also the ability to rally a team around a mission to be able to get things done quickly. So if you've got two people who you're considering and one of them has a proven track record of execution and is execution focused and is good at partnerships and aligning a team and selling the vision, uh, you're gonna pick that person over somebody even if they've got a ton of intellectual horsepower, if their tendency is to take a step back and, and pontificate and iterate and iterate until the perfect thing. You need somebody who can drive that execution in order to drive that learning, assuming that they have the other skills. So in summary, you're looking for product insight, analytical judgment, technical expertise, and the ability to execute. So in summary, those are five things that I've learned about product management. I am happy to answer any questions you may have. Cool, so one question I have just on, on what you were just talking about. We have a few questions in anticipation of this talk from founders around hiring. And I guess you, you talked about what the four attributes are you're looking for. How do you actually operationalize that as an early stage founder of a very small team? And how would that change from what, let's say what Google's looking for versus what a small 10 person team is looking for? And how would you operationalize that into specific interview questions? Do you have any favorite interview questions that expose some of this stuff? How do you actually figure out if, if they actually have these attributes or not? I do have a few interview questions that I really like. There are lots of Google interview questions that you can get on the web and, and things of this nature. So the kinds of questions that I like for product insight are either sort of detailed UI design type questions one example of a great question that I received in an interview that I thought was very thoughtful was to go through the process of designing a sign-up form for a website. Just entering in your username and password information, maybe your date of birth or something like this, your address, and just how does somebody go through the process of thinking about that? Another is to ask people about their favorite products and how they might make them better. There are more domain-specific questions in this area, but just getting an idea of how somebody fundamentally thinks about products, both on a, on a micro basis as well as on a macro basis, depending upon the, the job. For analytical skills, I'll tell you, the question that I love to ask, which some people find infuriating, is because it, it seems not relevant to the domain, is imagine you're the manager of a McDonald's and you have a one-page dashboard to measure your success what would be on your dashboard? And so most people in, who I've interviewed have not thought about or have not been a manager of a McDonald's. And therefore, they have to think about how they would structure the problem in the head of what are the metrics that are most important for a manager of a McDonald's in order to be successful. And then you go into an exploration of 
why they pick that organizing structure and why they pick the specific metrics and then how they can answer certain questions through the metrics that they pick. And so I have a list of questions that I typically go through of things that you could be able to intuit from the, the metrics that you pick and typically you update that list of metrics. And so those are a few things, but there are lots of ways to figure this out. Just you know, try to pick some questions that may tease apart the domain of the skills that you're looking for. All right, we're joined by Rob Mann. Uh, Rob, if you could please quickly introduce yourself and then ask your questions to Jerry. Thank you. Name is Rob Mann. I know Jerry and Gil for many years back uh, from uh, study days. So thanks guys for doing this. My question, I have a couple of questions. First and foremost, is traditional segmentation dead or useless from your perspective, particularly for product management? What do, you, do you mean uh, market segmentation or do you mean, could you be a little more specific? So yeah, uh, market segmentation and customer segmentation in particular, you know, particularly when companies like Google can really just rally a ton of data about particular people, the context in which they find themselves, the changes that happen every day with a particular person that may be in a particular segment one day, but then fall into a segment another. So I debate with my colleagues to what degree is traditional segmentation really useful and valuable in this day and age? Yeah, so you know, I agree. I think that a lot of those notions should be reconsidered. And I delivered a recent talk actually to a, at a design conference where when you think about it, a lot of product designers historically have found this ideal target customer who they design for. But the data that we've seen, for example, through Google web search would suggest that if you look at actually the people who were searching for the kinds of products that a lot of designers are designing for, they're different than the customers who are in their sort of platonic ideal of a customer. And so a few examples of that are the percentage of people over the age of 35 who are looking for video games or the percentage of people looking for sporting goods who are women versus men or things of this nature. So we see a lot of these somewhat counterintuitive or at least not conventionally accepted insights from the Google search data. So then the question is, what do you do about it? And the answer is, know your customers. You really want to try to find out more about your customers to the extent that you can, either through using tools like Google or Facebook or things like that to advertise to different populations and learn about them or to interview your customers, to do surveys or other things of this nature so that you can adapt your products to work better for your actual customers rather than your perceived ones. Thank you. And I'll hold on my other question until you entertain other people's questions, but I have another one afterwards. For sure. So we actually did get a really interesting question from Adi, and he was asking, Jerry, if you could share some examples of how data analysis and insights for products are used at Google. So we use data for everything. And actually, one of the reasons why we, we weight product insights and analytical skills as well is because you can drown in the data a little bit. And so I'll give you an example that's very close to home. In search advertising, we are constantly running experiments. We run thousands of experiments a year on the Google search results page in order to see how users interact and how advertisers perform with various changes that we make on the quality side, on the UI side, or things of this nature. When you have a launch candidate, we have a panel of around 100 metrics that you look at. And granted, there may be 20 metrics that are more important than the rest, but you have this panel of 100 metrics. And as a product manager, you need to understand the nature of those metrics. And then you need to be able to tell a story 
for what's really going on in the data. And so you take a look at the metrics and you try to predict what's going on for an individual user based on that series of metrics. And then you defend that to a panel of folks who are engineers and data scientists and other product managers who approve these launches to see whether your story is plausible or not. And so typically it's through a combination of taking a look at patterns in the data through all of these metrics, potentially enhanced by anecdotal examples. So if you can find a cluster of queries or a cluster of situations that justify your narrative, that's how you get a launch approved. So we're constantly looking at data in order to be able to tell a story. But given the volume of data, it's often helpful to pair that with either anecdotal data or product intuitions in order to speed the learning process. Awesome. Thank you, Jerry. Rob, you had another question? Yeah, thank you. Um, any favorite stories about what I would call traditional companies or non-digital native companies that have become really excellent at digital product management and what it took for them to be able to excel and get over the hump of migrating from traditional product management to, uh, to digital product? I don't have one particular favorite example, but you are seeing in an increasing number of industries more traditional companies really rethink what it means to operate in a digital world. And where you really saw the, the best examples of this was in the transition from desktop to mobile, where you, uh, this is another thing that I mentioned in a previous conference, but there are these cases where consumers are way, way ahead of businesses. You know, uh, one particularly interesting example was this woman was looking to build a house. She had this plot of land out in the suburbs and she was trying to, to figure out how to find contractors and get appliances and get permits and things like this. So previously she would do this on the weekends on her desktop computer. Nowadays she does it in her spare time on her mobile phone. And you'd go out and you'd talk to these advertisers and you'd say, hey, contractor or appliance vendor or government bureau, really your customers are trying to investigate your extremely highly considered purchase on a mobile device. And they would say, no, this is impossible. But the people who leaned into it would do incredibly well because they're able to satisfy that consumer need at that moment of intent. And so right now you're actually seeing this in the retail sector due to COVID-19. So Home Depot, for example, in our area is doing amazingly well. And the reason why is because you have this population of consumers that were trained to use online providers like Amazon, for example, and you can't get the products that they need because they're in non-essential categories. But Home Depot has same day delivery. So you can order at eight o'clock in the morning and by noon, a lawnmower will show up at your house when gardeners can no longer come to your house. And the businesses that have decided that digital is strategic and are leaning into that are tremendously increasing market share. And if they can do this over time in a profitable way that becomes natural for their business, then they'll be able to deliver these truly unique consumer experiences that will help their users lead their lives better. And so you're seeing a lot of this digital transformation right now, projects that 
were on the two or three year time frame that are now on the two or three week time frame that are leading to a lot of innovation in the digital space. It's a great example. Thank you. Wonderful. We have a question next from Ricardo. Ricardo, you're up. Thank you. Yeah, name is Ricardo Chirelli, and I am in charge of product for a startup based in London called MelaWorks. So my question is, uh, since I am in charge of product, but also according to your presentation, in my experience, the product management role is kind of pivotal role that touches engineering, marketing, and CEO because of the mission. So I would like to have your experience in balancing these interactions and also especially with the head of engineering and the CTO. I mean, ultimately, the way that we think of it at Google is sort of as a, the key relationships are engineering product and design, and you all need to be on the same page in, in order to progress effectively. Now, that's not to say that there isn't healthy tension sometimes, but your goal as a product manager should be for those three functions to be working together very productively. And that means that you need to have empathy for what's needed on the engineering side. Your engineering leader needs to have empathy for what you have on the product side. And the same is true for design. And so if you're running into constant conflicts, you need to really understand the nature of those conflicts and try to resolve those. In a well-functioning team, all three of these participants are seen as equal partners with, with equal voices, leading to the same objective, again, that rocket ship, the single mission that the product manager owns and, and champions. Great. We're now joined by Anthony. Hi, everyone. Um, thanks for this session. This is Anthony here from Mattaway from Berlin. I would like to ask you um, about enterprise products, which are presumably slightly more slow or slow moving than maybe YouTube or, <laughs> or sort of Google search. Do you have any recommendations or what's your opinion on slower moving customers that lead to slower moving iteration speeds, um, which also makes testing obviously much harder? So we have a number of enterprise products and this is, and my background actually before coming to Google was largely an enterprise product software development. So I understand what I think about enterprise products is that a key consideration in picking what market you choose to pursue is how important it is for your customer populations, how much of a painkiller problem is it essentially, and how fast can your cycle time be in learning, especially early on. If you're a small company that has to deal with big customers that have long cycles and the product does not solve a very acute problem for them, then things can get very, very slow and can also lead to asymmetric outcomes because then your first customers can take really take advantage of you in order to get what they want rather than what you want. So there's this constant push-pull that you have between being able to build something general and being able to build something for those big customers. So the question that you always have to constantly be asking yourself is, how do you get out of that log jam? Is there a way to address uh, work groups or is there a way to scale this up so that you have a way of counterbalancing your first customer, your second customer, or your small set of very demanding customers so that you can nudge them towards a more uh, general purpose solution or you can nudge them towards something which is more tractable. And so there are a few ways that you can do that. One way is by trying to trim the requirements or try to create configurability in such a way that you can meet multiple use cases. Another way to do that is by trying to restrict your population so that you can access work groups. 
by really mapping your adjacencies and selling to a specific customer segment that can then lead to an adjacent customer segment quickly thereafter once you've satisfied a particular set of needs doing your classic kind of Jeffrey Moore enterprise product management stuff. There are a number of ways, but it is a, a key problem for enterprise companies and a key determinant of success is being able to solve these kinds of problems. You mentioned also um, delighting users. And also, again, in the enterprise, there's, let's say, a bunch of different potential people that might be delighted, such as the actual end user, potentially the sort of the sysadmin, you know, the person sort of running you know, the infrastructure of a product, maybe delighting the center of excellence or the people that actually, you know, own, you know, internally our product, obviously delighting the economic buyer or the executive buyer and, and where applicable maybe developers or the people that, that, that customize, you know, a product. From your perspective, is there a clear prioritization about who we should aim to delight first or with first priority? I tend to think that the most satisfaction that I get is from there are two populations. One is who is using the product day to day. You want that to be a delightful experience because I mean, we have tools, for example, the advertiser tools that we have, professional users are in these tools 10, 12 hours a day. You want that to be a great experience for them because When it is, then it's very satisfying for you as an engineer or as a product manager or designer. And if it's not, then you know it really wears on them. And then the second population is who's paying the bills. So really for me, for advertising products, what that means is, are you delivering a great return on investment? And often that helps the end user too, because the end user is responsible for some marketing function. But ultimately, you need to be able to meet the company's strategic objective. The other uses are important too from a craftsmanship perspective, but those are the two that we tend to focus on first. Thank you, Jerry. We now have a question from Lucy. Lucy, can you introduce yourself and then ask away? Yeah, hi everyone. Hi, Jerry. I'm Lucy, I'm a product manager at Unbabu, which is a little bigger company, around 300 people, which means I have stakeholders that, I, that want to see commitment on one side and then I want to be agile and experimenting on the other side. And my question is about your thoughts on roadmaps and for how long you build them, because I feel like I'm pulled to two directions. On one hand, I, like we have a vision and we have metrics that we want to influence, but we want to be a little flexible about how we get there if we really want to work agile. So, and the further we go in a future, the less likely it will happen exactly what we plan that will happen. But on the other hand, the stakeholders want to see and plan for a long time and see high commitment that this is exactly what you're going to roll out. So how do you think about how do you build roadmaps and for how long, how you're seeing this? There's a decent framework that we use at Google. Uh, well, some teams use at Google called 70-20-10, where essentially you're spending 70% of your time on the core, 20% of your time on some less certain things that are one or two years out and 10% of your time on things that are really exploratory or wacky. In actuality, it ends up not being strictly 70-20-10. In some cases, you're going to be in exploration mode. So your 10 ends up being 20. In some cases, you're going to be in roll up your sleeves and get stuff done mode. And that 70 is going to be 90. And so what you want to do is you want to segment your efforts using a framework like this and then saying, okay, for the 70, you have a hard commitment, but you've bought yourself some space in order to do exploration. And that's just a good way to keep innovation going because if you over-constrain the problem and you don't allow yourself the ability to innovate, 
particularly as an emerging company of 300 people, it's going to be very difficult for you to be agile enough to capture those market opportunities. Another thing that I'll say related to this is that I made the explicit decision after COVID for us to be able to try to increase that percentage of exploratory work so that as we see emerging behaviors happen on the user and advertiser side, we have the flexibility to be able to try to capture those opportunities. And you may want to think about your business again in this sort of cyclical way so that you can do that more easily. Thank you. And the 70% you, you closed for a quarter or for a year, how was the time frame for the 70%? We typically do this through quarterly objectives and annual objectives, and the quarterly objectives support the annual objectives. So we have an annual planning cycle and a quarterly planning cycle. Back when I was in startup land, how I used to do this was through a one-page commitment doc that we would review weekly that would have a month of work which is different than the Google process where we have a little longer running timelines. I found that a month was just the right level of atomicity to work with it in a startup of a little smaller than you're talking about the same size. Thank you. Well, what I see a lot in early stage companies is particularly when the company is doing something that at least they believe is truly innovative. There's a bit of a tension between do we go to customers and, and try to figure out what they want and give it to them? Or do we use our product to show them what we think they want? In other words, the sort of if, you know, the Henry Ford faster horses thing. How do you think about that balance, particularly for early stage companies with their, with their first few customers? I mean, in general, my philosophy is that you really want to try to understand their underlying needs and you want to be able to bridge between the thing that you've developed and their underlying needs. If you can do that successfully, then great. If you can't do that successfully, then you need to decide the absolute minimum that you give them in order to be able to build that causal linkage. But if all you're doing is going to them and asking them what they want and then building it, it's often very difficult to innovate. There are counterexamples. I've seen very successful companies that have managed to back their way into a problem by really understanding a particular customer's needs and then just building that very thing. But I've found that there are relatively fewer of those who are successful uh, than folks who have their own independent vision and figure out a way to satisfy our customers' underlying needs in a new way and then bridge to that vision. Yeah, so we got a question from Nimrod and he was asking what project uh, management best practices work at big corporations but are a bit counterproductive or less important at small startups. I would say that probably the one thing that we have that is, it's a little different than with small startups is that there are broader stakeholder management issues that show up in decision-making at large companies that you just don't have to deal with in small startups because the in large companies, you sometimes run into situations, particularly when you're doing super innovative things where a hundred people can say no, but one person can say yes and only in a certain situation. What I try to do as a leader at Google is I try to identify those situations proactively and support those teams so that they don't get a hundred no's so that they get air cover. But in a small company, you just don't have these kinds of issues. You have the five people on the team who you need to align and maybe your CEO, and then you decide and you just run. So I would say that that's one where if you have a big company product manager and that's their superpower and you're thinking about recruiting them for your super early stage startup, they better have other skills because that's not going to be anywhere near as useful as it is at a larger company. 
but it's extremely useful at a larger company. Cool. Jerry, thanks so much for doing this. We really, really appreciate it. Thanks to Anne for organizing it all and making it run so smoothly. Thank you everyone for joining us. Thank you so much, Jerry, for, for giving a great talk and we hope to see everyone again soon. Thanks for the great questions. I really enjoyed it. Have a good rest of your day. Thank you.